Well, good morning, beloved. It is time to give our attention to God's Word this morning. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Mark chapter 11, where we're going to continue our study in the Gospel of Mark, which we have called Follow Me, Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. If you're new to the Bible, um, when we talk about the Gospel of Mark or the Gospel of Luke, there are four of them, Mark, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We're talking about those parts of the New Testament, the first four books in the New Testament, which tell us the, the life of Jesus Christ while he was here on earth and um, tells us about his ministry and things that he has done. So if you want to get a good close-up look at Jesus, uh, the place to do that is in the Gospels. And that's what we've been doing over the last several months and are continuing this morning. Let me offer a word of prayer for us, and then we'll get into it. Father, we pray, come, visit us, O Lord, by your Spirit. Come, speak to us by your Word. Come, Lord, minister to us, heal us, O Lord, in your grace. Come, give us hope, and give us eyes to see Jesus, we pray. Feed our souls, we ask, in Jesus' name. Amen. Last Sunday, of course, we celebrated Easter. I enjoy Easter. I've enjoyed Easter since I was a kid, probably like you. Not because I understood Easter, but because of the Easter egg hunts. You boy used to love some Easter eggs, man. Uh, when I was really small, I used to love to dip the eggs in the dye and to color them with my mom. That was the whole fun of it, was to color the dye. As I got a little bit older, got a little bit fancier, little tie-dye eggs and things of that sort. When I was old enough to run around the yard, then I used to really enjoy Easter egg hunts. You know, our parents would go out and hide the eggs in various places in the yard and gather all the kids in one place and do a little countdown and the kids would scatter all over the yard looking for eggs, in a little basket grabbing eggs. But pretty soon I, I got a little too old for Easter egg hunts. At least that's what the adults told me. I didn't think so. But I got a little too old for Easter egg hunts um, with just the egg. They started to switch things up. They got the plastic eggs. You take the sort of top off and you put prizes in. And they put all kinds of little prizes in the eggs, including cash prizes. And so you run around looking for those eggs, trying to, trying to find that paper, man, trying to find a chocolate bunny or something like that. It was interesting. This past week, I saw a woman on Twitter post a picture of some Easter eggs that she had made for her son, who's now... Uh, I think she said 12, who feels like he's too old for Easter egg hunts. So she got these camouflage eggs, 12 of them, uh, and was going to hide them in the yard. I guess camouflage makes it feel like he's growing up with the eggs of it or something. And it's interesting, man. If you least believe Marvel movies and comics, we kind of never outgrow Easter eggs. Because in those movies, there are little Easter eggs, little teasers, little things that you find that clue you into um, something that's going to happen later in the film or, or harkens back to some other comic or sets you up for the next movie. We kind of never get too old for Easter eggs. We never get too old for the surprise. And we never get too old for the truth that if you find the egg, you find the prize. You might say that our text this morning is a text full of Easter eggs. There are subtle clues here uh, in Matthew chapter 11, verse to one, verses 1 to 11, about who Jesus is and, and why he has come. With the exception of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, 
which, which sort of shows us very clearly who Jesus is, it might be that Matthew chapter 11 verses, or excuse me, Mark chapter 11 verses 1 to 11, which we call the triumphal entry, it might be that that, that might be the second passage of scripture that declares the most to us about who Jesus is, but it does it in this sort of clever, almost veiled way. It does it with Easter eggs. The text has really simple action. Verse 1, we're told that uh, Jesus and the disciples arrive at Jerusalem. Verses 2 and 3, he gives two disciples instructions to go and to get a colt, a young donkey, uh, from a neighboring town and to bring it to him. Verses 4 to 6 or 7 or so, that's exactly what they do. They go get the colt, they bring it to Jesus, and then in verses 8 through 10, Jesus actually enters into Jerusalem riding that donkey to the praise of all the people there. Then in verse 11, we see Jesus in the temple all by himself, examining and expecting the temple. Simple action, but in it are five Easter eggs. And that's what I want us to think about this morning, these Easter eggs, to find them so that we find the clues as to who Jesus really is. Look with me at Mark chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, as you, enter it you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found the colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he, was, and when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. So five Easter eggs for us this morning. Number one, the first Easter egg is there in verse one. It's the reference to the Mount of Olives. Our, our section of the Bible opens with Mark telling us in verse one that Jesus drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives. Now, Mark's writing style is actually an action-packed writing style. He goes from sort of action to action. He doesn't spend a lot of time giving us details like names and places. He gets right to the point. His favorite word is immediately or immediately then. But in verse 1, Mark actually gives us four locations in one verse. That's unusual for Mark. We know about Jerusalem. That's where Jesus has been going for the last three chapters. That's the, the place where Jesus will be betrayed where he will be arrested and beaten and mocked and crucified. And three days later, he will rise from the grave. Three times Jesus has predicted that for his disciples. And then we have two other towns mentioned here, Bethphage and Bethany. 
These are two small towns just outside of, of Jerusalem. And this little detail lets us know that Jesus was entering Jerusalem from the east. That's an Easter egg. The Mount of Olives is a hill that rises about 2,600 feet above sea level. It's about 300 feet higher than Jerusalem. Remember our first trip to Israel, sitting on the Mount of Olives and looking over into the city of Jerusalem onto the temple uh, mound area. You can see pretty much everything that's happening in and around Jerusalem and the temple. And this is where Jesus was. And as I said, it's the Mount of Olives to the east, which is our first Easter egg, our first clue as to Jesus' identity. There are a couple points in the Bible where the Mount of Olives is referred to and associated with the Savior. Here's how one writer summarizes it. Already before David's time, the Mount of Olives has been a place of worship, 2 Samuel 15:32. At the fall of Jerusalem in 586 B.C., Ezekiel had a vision of the glory of the Lord departing from Jerusalem and settling on the Mount of Olives, Ezekiel 11.23. According to Zechariah 14.4, the Mount of Olives would be the site of final judgment, and the rabbis and Josephus in Antiquities associated it with the coming of the Messiah. Mark, who seldom mentions place names, may mention the Mount of Olives here in order to associate its messianic significance with Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. So the Mount of Olives is the location for the Savior's visit. Jesus coming this way through the Eastern Gate, through the Mount of Olives, is in fulfillment of precisely some of the themes and images and actions and prophecies that we find in the Old Testament. It's a subtle signature for the Messiah. Well, you may say coming in from the Mount of Olives from the east um, is, is too subtle a clue. I mean, surely other people would come that way as well. They're not the Messiah. Why is this such a big deal? Well, if we were thinking about this all by itself, you'd be right. That, that would be stretching things too far. But now we have to think about the second Easter egg. We find it in verse 2. Notice there, Jesus sends two unnamed disciples into an unnamed town to give him a colt on which no one has ever sat. That's a rather specific request, isn't it? Now, when Matthew tells this story of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, Matthew, at this point, adds a detail so that his readers, they're not looking for Easter eggs. Matthew is just being very direct and open. He adds a detail there that helps us understand the significance of this. Matthew chapter 21, verse 4, quotes Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, which we read in the call to worship. Matthew says there that Jesus sent these two to get this, this cult, that this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Now, in ancient times, kings would travel on one of two animals. If they were going out to battle, if it was a time of war, they would ride a war steed, a, a massive, big horse um, prepared and dressed for battle. 
But if they were coming in peace, they would ride a, a smaller horse or even a donkey or a colt, as we have it here in this text. And, and coming into a town on an animal like that, not a war horse, but a donkey, that symbolized peace. And that's how the Messiah, according to Zechariah, would come to Israel. He would come into Israel riding a colt, riding a humble beast of burden, because he was coming in peace. But now Matthew is actually paraphrasing Zechariah. He kind of calls parts of the verse, but he didn't quote the entire verse. So it's useful to look at the full verse from Zechariah 9, verse 9. This is what it says. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, notice now, righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So it's clear that when we compare scripture with scripture, when we put together the various accounts of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, it's clear that the Bible writers want us to pick up on the fact that Jesus is fulfilling the prophecy in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. That Israel's true king is visiting them. That he is coming, notice now, he's righteous, and he has salvation, and he's humble, and he's coming in peace. He's riding the Messiah's transportation. He's coming from the Messiah's location, and he's bringing salvation with him. That's what Mark wants us to see. That's what he wants his readers to see, and he is humble and righteous. That's the kind of Savior that was predicted. That's the kind of Savior that Jesus is. But there's more. Notice now a third Easter egg to help us understand that Jesus is the Savior and he's visiting his people. Did you notice that in verses 2 to 3, that what we have there really is a prophecy. Jesus tells these two disciples to go into this town. He tells them what they're going to find. A colt tied up that no man has written. And then verses 4 to 6 basically is the fulfillment of that prophecy. They go into the town. They find the colt just as Jesus had told them. They're asked a question about why they're taking the colt just as Jesus had told them. And they give the answer that Jesus told them to give. And then they return with the colt. The colt. So what we, what we find here is a kind of foreknowledge. What we find here is... Uh, the ability to sort of predict and to know the future. We're seeing Jesus here as a prophet. He has the kind of knowledge that the Savior should have, a knowledge of future events. And again, if you're skeptical, you might say, well, you know, maybe he prepared that beforehand. Um, maybe somehow they've already set this up, or maybe even this is a coincidence. Or when he came through the town, he noticed the cult when they walked through the town. Well, if this was the only time this kind of thing happened, you might be right. But actually, Jesus regularly predicts the future. He regularly tells uh, the disciples what's going to happen moments ahead, days ahead, even years ahead. So think, for example, about Jesus telling Peter that um, he would deny him three times before the rooster crowed. Happened exactly as Jesus said. 
Or think about Jesus predicting that the temple would be torn down and not one stone would be left there. Well, you fast forward some 37 years to 70 AD, and that's exactly what happened. When the temple in Jerusalem was seized and torn down. Or think about how many times Jesus predicts, again, his own arrest, beating, mocking, crucifixion, death, and resurrection. Three times in Mark's chapters 8, 9, and 10. This means that we're not talking about something that happens by coincidence. We're talking about something that happens by knowledge. That Jesus is a prophet. That he has this kind of divine knowledge. He knows things perfectly, even down to cults being unwritten and tied up. It's an Easter egg to help us to recognize that this Jesus is different. He's different in his knowledge. He's different in every way, really. And that brings us to a fourth Easter egg. We find it there in verse, thir verse 3. When Jesus tells his disciples what to say if someone asks him about taking the cult, he says there, say, the Lord has need of it, and we'll send it back here immediately. Now, Mark usually uses Lord to refer to God the Father. He does that in chapter 1, verse 3, chapter 11, verse 19, chapter 12, verse 11, chapter 12, verse 29, and 30. He frequently uses Lord to refer to God the Father. But it's obvious in this context that he can't be referring to God the Father because God the Father doesn't need no donkey. He doesn't need a colt, right? And sometimes the word Lord, the Greek word kurios, can uh, be translated or used in a way that refers not to God the Father, but refer to uh, like a landowner, the sort of Lord of uh, an estate, if you will, a, a boss, an owner in that way. And some people have suggested that um, what Jesus means here is that the Lord of the donkey, the owner of the donkey, uh, requires the donkey. But that doesn't make any sense either because it's not the owner of the donkey who is riding the donkey and needs it. It's Jesus. He says he needs the donkey. And then when you add the definite article, the word the, the Lord needs this donkey, you know we're not talking about common usage. We're not talking about landowners. We're not talking about folks with, you know, a little property who are who are called lords. We, we're talking about something unique. We're talking about something different from that. And what Jesus does here is actually unusual in terms of how he talks about himself. He, he does in other places refer to himself as the Lord, but normally he does it in this kind of subtle, clever way. Let me give you a few examples. In Mark chapter 2, verse 28, uh, when he's been there sort of teaching about the Sabbath and debating with the Pharisees about the Sabbath, in Mark chapter 2, verse 28, he says, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Now there he uses Son of Man almost like a pronoun to refer to himself as the Messiah, and he says he's the Lord of the Sabbath. In Mark chapter 5, verse 19, Jesus heals a demon-possessed man. And after he heals that demon-possessed man, he tells the man, go tell them how much the Lord has done for you. It's a little bit ambiguous. Is he referring to himself or is he referring to God? You know, as he says, hey, go, go tell him what the Lord has done for you. Let me give you one more example. Mark chapter 12, verses 36 to 37. 
Jesus in, is a dispute with the Pharisees about uh, his being called Lord. And Jesus refers to the Psalms of David, and he says there, the Lord said to my Lord, right? Now, it's, it's all very subtle. It's all very clever. Um, these, are, these are more hints at his identity than it is sort of plain statements. But here in Mark chapter 11, verse 3, what we get is a, a plain statement, the Lord referring to himself. Um, and as one writer puts it, Jesus' use of this title for himself it's very unusual and a clear claim to deity. Mark wants us to see that Jesus is a prophet, yes, but he's much more than a prophet. He is God. He is deity. He is divine. He takes the divine name upon himself. He refers to himself as the Lord. And when he sends the disciples into the town to get the donkey, and he, he says, hey, if anybody asks you why you're, why you're taking this donkey, tell them, the Lord has need of it. Notice that the people let them go with the donkey. They seem to understand that Jesus is Lord too. It's an affirmation of his claim to be God. Now, if Jesus is God, then nothing could be more important than, it, than that he tell us in a straightforward way and that we believe him. Nothing could be more important than that. Now, if he is not God, then he is a blasphemer and a demon, as C.S. Lewis would put it. Uh, he, he is someone who is committing one of the greatest sins that one could commit by making themselves out to be God when they are, when he is not God. This is how the Pharisees react to him. This is how Muslims today react to this claim. But if he is God, just as he claimed, then we have to recognize him as Lord. We got to see this Easter egg, and we got to put it in our basket. So let me ask you this morning, beloved: Do you recognize Jesus as the Lord, as God, the Son? who rules over all things. This is what the Bible wants you to see. So Jesus comes from the Messiah's location, the Mount of Olives. Jesus takes the Messiah's transportation, a, a colt, the foal of a donkey. Jesus prophesies with the Messiah's knowledge. And Jesus claims for himself the Messiah or the divine title, the Lord. There's one final Easter egg here to see. We see it in verses 9 and 10 where Jesus receives the Messiah's praise. That's what we see there, verses 9 and 10, when the crowd reacts. And again, each of the gospel writers records for us the various reactions of people who were in Jerusalem on that day. So Mark chapter, or excuse me, Matthew chapter 21 Verse 10 says this, And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up. So you get the, the reaction of the entire city, this, this tumult, this commotion when he comes in. In the next verse, verse 11, Matthew says that the people were saying, Who is this? Wondering who this Jesus was. And, and the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. 
So the crowds seem to understand him to be a prophet, but they haven't yet recognized his divinity, that he's God. Or think about how Luke tells the story in Luke chapter 19, verse 37. Luke says there, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. But Luke also tells us about the Pharisees there in verse 39. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. They, they didn't want them praising him in that way. And Jesus replies to him, to the Pharisees in the famous words of Luke 19, verse 40, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Everybody's reacting to Jesus coming into the city. Even the stones are ready to praise him. Uh, there's a little cliche that says that somebody is dumb as a rock or dumb as a, a bag of rocks or a box of rocks. Beloved, the rocks in Luke 19, 40 want you to stop saying that. Because it's the rocks in Luke 19.40 that have more sense than the people there. Because the rocks know who he is. They will cry out and praise him if the people don't. Notice now, when Jesus comes to town, the entire city is awakened and excited. And they want to know who he is and what's going on. And it's interesting how they praise him. So in Mark 11, 9 and 10, notice the words of their praise. Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna is a word that means save. They're crying out, save, salvation, rescue us. It was a common expression of praise in that day. Now today, we, we might think of how often people say something like, Praise the Lord or hallelujah. Well, it was common, Hosanna was commonly used in that way. And it was the perfect thing to say. The Savior was coming to the city. It was perfect for people to be crying out, save, Hosanna. And the rest of the praise there tells us why. The Messiah was coming in the name of the Lord. It means he's coming in God's authority and with God's power. And, and the Messiah was coming, uh, notice, to, to bring the kingdom of our father David. This is a rare use of that phrase, Father David. But it's referring back to 2 Samuel chapter 7, where God had promised to David that David would have a son who would sit on David's throne, would rule in David's kingdom forevermore. And Jesus is that son of David, as blind Bartimaeus called him just a few verses earlier. He has come to bring that kingdom that was promised to great King David. He is going to rule on David's throne forever. You see what's happening here? Their Savior and God's salvation was visiting the people of Israel as God had promised. They're praising him, but they haven't yet gathered the Easter eggs. Listen, beloved, sometimes we praise God better than we understand God. Sometimes people can say words of praise for God without actually knowing God. I mean, don't we see something like this almost every time we see on television an award show where some actress or some musician 
gets up and praises God for the award that they won, and then you think about the music or you think about the role and you go, well, everything about that music and that role blasphemes God, sins against God. People are, are, are sort of culturally religious and will praise God, but, but not understand who he is. And sometimes we praise God better than we understand God. And that's what's happening in Mark chapter 11. They say the correct words, but they do not have the correct understanding. And they do not believe. And we know this clearly because if we go over to John chapter 12, verses 16 to 19, as John is telling this same story, John tells us about belief and the lack of belief in all of these people. John 12, beginning in verse 16. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered these things that had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this thing. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. So John sort of takes time to say, not only did the disciples not understand this until after the resurrection, not only did the crowds not understand this because they were still focused on the miracle with Lazarus, uh, the Pharisees also didn't understand this. They opposed this because they were afraid of losing followers. And so with each of these groups of people, you see, it's entirely possible to praise Jesus and yet not know him. And beloved, this is why each and every one of us who are Christians must be committed to becoming theologians. Not in an academic ivory tower sort of way, but in an everyday Bible-gripping, loving my Savior kind of way. We need to know him and know him well. It's possible to say correct things and have the wrong meanings. On that day, no one understood who Jesus was. Not the disciples, not the crowds, not the Pharisees, only the rocks understood who Jesus was. And perhaps this is why Luke ends his telling of this story of a triumphal entry with these sad words in Luke chapter 19, verses 41 and 44. And when he draw near and saw the city, this is Jesus, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you. Why? Because you did not know the time of your visitation. You didn't know when your God was with you. Jesus wept over the city and, and over this people because they didn't recognize that he was the promised Messiah, bringing the salvation that God had promised him. They didn't see the Easter eggs. They didn't collect the Easter eggs, and so they didn't get the prize. And this is what makes the ending in Mark chapter 11, verse 11, all the more dramatic. Just a little illustration here. 
we have sometimes seen the, the final episode of some popular television sitcom. Think about the end of the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. You recall he's standing in the house out there in Bel-Air. All the furniture is taken out. The set is empty. It's just Will Smith. And he takes a long moment there and kind of walks off. Or you think about um, the ending of The Cosby Show. Similar kind of thing. Theo goes off to college and graduates. The family's celebrating. They're in the house one last time. And, and, and Heathcliff and Claire take their final look and they walk off. Or we've seen shows where the actor is standing on the set and the set is relatively empty. There are no other characters and the lights just go dark. I think that's what we have here in Mark 11, 11. Notice what's, what's said here. Jesus has finally entered into Jerusalem um, and he went into the temple and when he had looked around at everything as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the 12. Mark's ending seems almost anticlimactic, kind of meh. You have Jesus in a temple late at night he just kind of diligently searched and looked around at everything in the temple. The temple was is dark outside, so perhaps the temple was empty at that point. The Lord is standing in the very place where he is meant to be worshipped, and there's nobody there. So the Lord walks out of the temple. He walks out of Jerusalem. He walks over to the east, to Bethany. And it's just as Ezekiel had prophesied. The glory of the Lord departed from the temple and moved east. And you could write over the temple, Ichabod, the glory is gone. They had missed God's glory. They had missed their Savior. They had missed out on God's salvation. What about you this morning? Are you smarter than a bag of rocks? Can you read the clues? Find the Easter eggs? Have you yet crossed the line from not believing in Jesus and trusting him as your Savior to believing that he is the Son of God, that he is God in the flesh, that he has come to save us from our sins, that he really was crucified for your sins, buried for three days, and raised from the grave three days later in power and glory? Have you crossed over to believing that you are the Lord of your own life, to believing that Jesus is the Lord, Lord of lords, King of kings, and he is your Lord, your ruler and savior, in all of life. Is that you? I hope that you have crossed the line. I hope that you have turned away from life, a life of sin and living for yourself and living according to your own desire and your own rules. And that you have turned and looked now to Jesus to rescue you from the coming judgment of God, to rescue you, to save you from the reality of hell and the judgment of hell. I hope you've turned to Jesus and you've cried out your own Hosanna, save, 
rescue me. You put your faith in him to do that. And you've begun to follow him, not as your own Lord, but to follow him as your new Lord. Because the promise of the Bible is, if you find Jesus that way, then you will be forgiven of all of your sins. You will be adopted into God's family. You will have been placed in God's kingdom forevermore. You will live with him in his kingdom where there is no more sin, no more death, no more dying, no more disease, but there is only glory and love and light and joy and pleasure because Jesus is there and Jesus is yours. So have you crossed the line? Will you cross the line? Will you put your hope in Jesus as the Savior who has come to save you? Will you believe him to rescue you and to make you God's own child? If you haven't done that, I pray you would do that right now by confessing your sins, repenting from them, and calling upon Jesus to save you. He will do it. And if you have, I pray that you will commit yourself, all of us who are Christians, would commit ourselves to knowing him so well that when he comes again, we'll recognize him, we'll be ready for him, that we won't be deceived by false messiahs and false saviors. We won't be taken away into cults and, and new ideas and new religions because we know Jesus and we are known by him. Find the Easter eggs. Make your Bible study an everyday Easter egg hunt where you look for Jesus on every page and in every chapter and you let the scriptures point you, point me to this magnificent Savior who is righteous and humble, who comes in peace to his people and brings salvation. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we want to know you better and love you more than anything else in the whole universe that we know and love. Help us to see you in the scripture for who you really are. Help us to recognize you in your dealings with us, to trace your hand and your fingerprints that we might know when we have been touched by you. Help us to know your voice and to distinguish it from all the other voices in the world so that we might hear your voice and be those sheep who follow you. Help us to be ready for when you return, looking and longing to be with you, we pray. Give us this grace, we ask. In Jesus' name.